Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Shit Show. Christy looked down and she saw that she saw that the loose end in the middle of Clippy's coil was sticking out. It was glowing red at the end, as if his rod had been stuck in a fire. Clippy had a boner. Kia ora everyone and welcome to a very chaotic well, this is me it's saying pre-empted. beforehand. It might be fine, might be normal. Good, well, I just wanted to let people know that you've already done Two podcasts before this. Yeah. This is Dunk's third, if you could, couldn't count. I'll do it for you. Um, and I've done one, but I'm feeling really Duncan today. Like, Duncan has this thing where he falls asleep. He's, like, real energetic, and then whenever anything stops, you sort of fall asleep, eh? Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. Um, and so I am feeling – that well, it won't happen on the podcast because that would not be good listening, but um, that's how I am. How are you? <laughs> Uh, you're pretty pretty much like that. I find three three podcasts probably my limit. Um, oh. One of them was just like a segment on a podcast doesn't really count, but I feel like you'll find it funny. It was it was on Duncan Garner, who's this like New Zealand sort of news personality type person, and he's got this new podcast. And when you've got a new podcast, you just got all these random segments, and his one is Ask a Duncan, and I was the second Duncan chosen for this this segment. How are you not the first Duncan? Well, mm. you know. What, I, I, the, I aspire the, to be the first Duncan. Was the I'm first one maths, Duncan? Man, if he got that, would be a monstrous gap. I know. Um, with Evelyn now, did you know? Yeah, I told you. Yeah, well. <laughs> Everyone, let it be known. Duncan's feeding me back information that I gave him. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did do that. Um, Duncan, aside from being on another Duncan's podcast, I'm actually kind of into that segment. I think it's really funny. <laughs> not that into Duncan Garner from Honest. No offense, dude, if you're listening, I'm sure you're not. Um, what's the weirdest thing you saw on the internet this week? And I don't think it's actually on the internet because it's like, <laughs> it's a really boomer email printed in front of Duncan right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did print it out and I'm not ashamed. No, I shouldn't be. Because I don't want to have a computer in front of me. I'll just start like looking at Slack while I'm doing a podcast, you know? Yeah, okay. So I print it out. I like a hard copy. Yeah. And um and yeah, look, look I know that it's it's not cool. No, Duncan, it actually is. You've made well, no. If you you're doing it with confidence, I think. I'm doing it with huge kind of confidence. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I love a printout. Um so no, it, it's it's from a, a newsletter called The Dirt. I mean, as you know, I struggle with the segment because I don't really look at the internet. I look at newsletters and news websites. I don't see any user-generated content. His caveat every week. Yeah, which you is where, where most weird stuff comes from. Uh, so I feel like I'm singularly poorly designed for this. But uh, The Dirt gave me the goods this morning, um, which is the, the headline is good. It's uh, Microsoft Word Erotica. Um, And it's about a piece of like erotic fan fiction composed with a subject as Clippy. 
So you, you probably need to be like an older listener to remember who Clippy is. He was this like sort of cheeky little paperclip assistant um, in the sort of, I think it was probably like Windows 95 era, which is when it, when it first started to get a little bit Mac-like, started to like be a bit friend, user-friendly. And um, <laughs> basically some, some enterprising person has written a, a 4,000-word short story that's about a woman who sort of basically encounters Clippy in the wild. And there's a, there's a quite cool line in here. Um, you me, should have highlighted your hard copy. Uh, Christy looked down and she saw that she saw that the loose end in the middle of Clippy's coil was sticking out. It was glowing red at the end as if his rod had been stuck in a fire. Clippy had a boner. Oh, my God. Okay, Ruby, maybe use that as the cold open. Well, that's fine. No, that's amazing. I'm struggling to see where the loose end is. There's a picture of Clippy here. Yeah, I think that was a bit of creative license taken. It was, it was. But the fact that it glows red, which seems sort of dangerous but also sexy seems in the like context a, of a hot paperclip. Honestly, it seems like it's about to brand you. Yeah, yeah, it feels sore. <laughs> painful but i also love the like theme of you bringing what did you bring like um crotch shots from yeah i'm still have not left the crotch yet one day maybe (laughs) but not today no don't never ever ever change um well my one my weirdest thing is like far less weird and niche than your one still kind of odd you know mr beast do know Mr. Beast. Famously, Mr. Beast, we never talked about it on this podcast, but did you ever see the tweet? Did I send it to you where he he released like Mr. Beast chocolate or snackables or something and he tweeted out, hey, if you guys see in the supermarkets that my aisles or my um, stacks of goods are looking messy, can you please just like, you know, do the Mr. Beast thing and like tidy them up? And everyone hated it online. They were like, they are not your merchandisers. <laughs> like, people do not have to go into supermarkets and stand there and tidy up all your rows of snacks. Um, so Mr. Beast is, like, famously random like that. Um, well, well, like, he, mis- he misreads the room at times. He does misread the room at times, but he also, I think, is just trying to do a good thing a lot of the times. Like, he gives people he seems very wholesome. can't see eye surgery and then... People come for him for that, and then people come for him for everything, as we will find. That's just people. It's just the internet, isn't it? Um, But Mr. Beast is buying a neighborhood. so Can't see an issue with that. (laughs) He is the most subscribed to YouTuber in the world, as I'm sure you all know. He apparently lives in a modest home in his neighborhood of (laughs) North Carolina. Doing some good slow reading there. Um, okay, you Buying had to search through your I'm paper. Fine. Oh, yeah, you're so Gucci. Um, anyway, so he has this neighborhood that he lives in near Greenville, North Carolina. This is where he grew up. The New York Post, really my favorite publication of all time. Um, anyway, the Post reported that he has now started buying up basically all the homes in a cul-de-sac so that his friends and family, well, his childhood friends turned workmates, employees um, can live in the homes. What do you think about this? It's giving David Dobrik, who I know you don't really know. Yeah, that's correct. It's also um, a little bit Ed Sheeran, you know, who famously built a pub for his mate staying at it on his his country estate. It's also a little bit Walt Disney with Epcot. Yeah. Yeah. 
but but um but I'm sure that there'll be people who have an issue with it because on some level it's displacing people who live there. But if he's just doing it as the houses become available, yeah. Well, I think he's fine. privately sort of going and um, oh, he's just making offers they can't refuse. Yeah, but because well, Zuckerberg like just bought his whole block over time. Yeah, um, basically just out of. I don't, you know, I, I guess it's, I don't, can't have people around me because too famous. Um, yeah, all, all that that kind of once people get to really elevated levels of wealth and status, that everything they do starts to be a bit strange. This feels like a sort of a more approachable, less terrifying version of that. But uh, yeah, I think it's not something that I have huge. Like, I just think it's weird, but I'm not like, wow, you should not do that, or wow, that's so cool. He did, you're correct, he did receive backlash for this. Um, critics called the move culty and and accused him of creating a company town that would ultimately just benefit his business. And then he replied to a tweet saying that he only he could get cancelled for giving people a place to live with no strings attached. I don't think it's only him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, 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 to be fair. No offense, Mr. Beast, but like a lot of other people would get cats for doing the same thing. Um, last thing on that, did you ever watch Don't Worry, Darling? The no. Okay, that's fine. Anyone that has sort of reminds me of the cul de sac that they live on. Anyway, Duncan. Lucy. <laughs> the big thing that we're talking about today is the Hollywood writers' strike, which we tried to talk about last week. I tried to talk about it on Culture Watcher last week. I tried to talk about it on The Shit Show last week. And last week, it didn't get away on me. I ruined it for myself by drinking too much one night, which I know people are sick of hearing about, so I'll stop. Um, but, Dunk, do you remember the uh, big writer strike that happened in 2007? I do, yeah. It was. I mean, it was, it was massive news, but it weirdly... I mean, I think it sort of felt bigger and more consequential then because television was still the dominant uh, sort of cultural form, yeah. which, which it probably isn't to anything like the same extent now. Uh, and, and it lasted a while then, but this one sort of feels like it might go for longer. But I think it's a really interesting situation. Like, I, I do think that it's it just happens to have come at a very specific economic moment and more specifically a moment for streaming yeah. in that, you know, I don't see either side budging and I think both sides have kind of got a a point which will which is, you know, normally, you know, because they, they do similar things in sports, right? Like the NBA um, had a strike maybe a few years after that and – in that situation, it's sort of like it's, it's ultimately a group of very wealthy people arguing about the share of the spoils mm-hmm. and how that should be directed. With this one, the fact that both sides have got a plausible argument does kind of tend to suggest this one could really stick around, which, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting thing to, to talk about. To, to tell me more about it, though, Lois. <laughs> so Dunk's a big TV dude, which is why I feel like he's quite good to have because I – don't remember the last strike, um, but I probably will remember this one, and I'll talk to you all a little bit about it. So the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, are on strike right now because after, well, I read after six weeks of negotiations, I feel like maybe it was long. I feel like this was bubbling for a while. Six weeks of negotiations, they basically, them and who? Who were they negotiating against? It's kind of probably a big thing that I should... Easily not. I mean, my understanding of it is that 
anyone who buys uh, scripted yeah. drama or comedy uh, from you know from from you know basically you have to use the writers guild if you're any of the big streamers and you're operating in the US it's highly unionized profession so if you're Netflix or Disney Plus or any of the NBC CBS ABC broadcast networks if you're all the cable networks you basically must use labor from the directors guild the writers yeah. guild etc and you know so they they do essentially have a kind of a, a legally mandated or it might not be like legally mandated but about a functional monopoly over the supply of writing labor yeah. into the big machine that makes all of our tv shows burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And anyway, they couldn't come to an agreement about how to compensate the people from the WGA properly. So now those writers are on strike. And just quickly, going back to what we spoke about um, just before the 2007 strike, which was 15 years ago, it lasted 100 days. It apparently cost uh, $2.1 billion to California's economy alone. It caused production to stop on a bunch of iconic TV shows, including The Office, where Steve Carell famously called out sick with a case of, you'll like this, enlarged balls. <laughs> um, <laughs> late night programs had to start killing time on air. I'm sure if you've been on TikTok lately, you've seen um, Conan O'Brien challenging himself to spin his wedding ring on the on his desk. Have you seen that? Uh, I've not seen that, but I've read about it. Read about that. Um, because he was trying to make a point about how shit his shows were without the writers that do all the funnies. And Family Guy, which which honestly 15 years ago would have been my favourite show, definitely, and still quite up there for me because I'm a child. Um, it was taken over by Fox for three episodes when Seth MacFarlane supported the strike and stopped making his stuff and so without his approval Fox sort of went in and made these Such episodes. Such crazy Fox energy no, to be doing that. I, I know. Um, and so now these writers are, not the same writers but the WGA, are striking again. I feel like to a lot of people it might be confusing because you think in your head that if you're a writer on a show you're like a Shonda Rhimes type, you're you know really creative and well paid and you've got this big plushy job but with Duncan streaming services and AI and a few other things, it just it feels like that's not the case anymore. So some of the reasons why it's getting harder and harder to make a living as just a normal writer on some of our favourite TV shows, Dunk. Um, studios and streamers are looking to cut costs on labour after a shit financial 2022. Well, shit financial... I feel like the streamers were like losing subscribers and Yeah, I mean this is really what gets at the nub of why I think it'll last a long time is because 
it almost couldn't have happened at a worse time that you were renegotiating the, these agreements and particularly the things they're trying to litigate. Some of that, like I've got some, not necessarily sympathy for the owners, but I think that some of what the writers are demanding almost feels unachievable maybe ever again, but particularly at this specific moment because the streamers have just come off a year where, you know, they're, they're lo- you know, they, because some of the stuff that writers are saying, they're like, you know, you guys are making heaps of money. You've got to share it with us. I'm like, no, they're losing heaps of money. Like, yeah. Disney's losing like a billion and a half a quarter on, on content at the moment. Netflix is losing subscribers or sort of, you know, barely breaking even. And certainly, you know, there's some of the stuff they're complaining about, like, the, like a lack of residuals, which are the long tail earnings that writers are often like, Really fond of which, which are about which are given when the shows replay on networks around the world, but and residuals are complicated in the, this era because the, the shows don't they, they don't play in prime time or, or anywhere near it. So there there aren't kind of ongoing license fees; they're just licensed to uh, you know often the commissioning streamer for you know in perpetuity essentially if, if they're commissioned by like a Netflix. So the the stuff is a lot more complicated than it was particularly the fact you know we've talked about the monoculture on this podcast like we we moved from a situation where there were a relatively small number of shows playing on a relatively small number of channels to there are more shows being made than ever but they just they don't look a lot like the shows from before they're not broad they're not 22 or 42 minute they're not advertising funded they're not 23 episode seasons they're you know six to eight episodes and they don't have any ads associated with them and the place that commissioned them might be losing a shitload of money so there's not a lot of upside to share at the moment so you know they're they're sort of negotiating on a prior paradigm when the world has changed a bit i reckon the reason that it seems so confusing as a viewer or to someone reading about it now is because it feels like what the writers are saying is that their labor is being cut we're going to go into something called mini rooms um, in a second where I can explain this a bit better. But it feels like the production of the shows visually is like fucking out of this world if you think about Stranger Things and things like that. And so to me it looks like um, they're just prioritising maybe one thing over another, which I don't think is – I don't think I am the expert on this, so there's a lot more that goes into it. But it feels really hard to – to make sense of when the shows look like they're doing really well and they're shooting to the top of the charts and there's so many new seasons and so many new things coming out for us to be like, yeah, but the companies behind them are losing money so the writer's got to go. Like it feels – I understand why they're pissed off. Well, yeah, because like there's also been – you know, there's two ways that you can conceptualise money. We had that sort of tax debate we talked about last time, like one of which is your dividends, like profits that you pay out on on an annual basis, for example, or there is the increase of shareholder value. And that's where, you know, some of these companies, while they're not profitable, their actual enterprise value, how much the company is worth, has gone up yeah. massively over that time. So, you know, if you're a writer and you feel like it's your product that has increased the value of Netflix, which even after it's decline, it's gone, been worth as much as like sort of 300 odd billion. It's come down to, you know, I think it's worth about 170 billion now. It still was worth like a billion dollars, you know, 15 mm. years or so ago. And while it hasn't made that much money in profits, it's still, if you're a big shareholder of Netflix, like it's um, senior yeah. executives are, they're wealthier. Yeah. And as a writer, you're not. So, you know, may, maybe 
that's part of what the negotiation might be is that they receive some of their compensation in stock, which is more likely to reflect the value they're creating. But certainly that they're asked, what they're asking for feels more like it's akin to the old model of business and profit distribution than what's happened to business subsequent to that. Yeah, and kind of touching on what you – a bunch of the things that you talked about earlier when it was like what are writers sort of mad about, you mentioned that seasons have been cut sort of drastically down from what they used to be. I am watching the OC right now and like I'm on season one, it's taken me a lifetime to get through it because it's 25 episodes, 40 minutes long, right? Great show, by the way. And Duncan is Seth Cohen. <laughs> but Seth Cohen's like even better. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> even better, like that's some achievement. Well, no, no. Well, it's yeah, almost like it a is. given. Well, you know, anyway, um, so seasons right now are more like 8 to 10 or 6 to 10 or whatever, which means writers are obviously writing less on each job that they do. Spaces between seasons, like if you think of how long you wait, I don't actually watch Stranger Things, but I know from people that do, you have to wait a long time to get season three to season four and whatever. And so writers are sort of looking, having to look for jobs in, in those between times as a lot of other industries, you know, this isn't, what are you wanting to say here? Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, if you're the studio, I think you could quite easily counter and say, yes, the seasons are shorter because they were all predicated around you know, the OC, maybe it was part of like a Thursday night lineup on um, like a basic cable channel or or a, or a network or something. And it had to run for like almost like half the year just yeah. to um, float the thing. Most of these things are released as they're sort of bingeable or they're even if they're released weekly, they sort of don't know whether things are successful. So the seasons are almost functioning in the same way that pilots might have historically. But I guess the, the point is that if you look at the total number of episodes produced that's probably higher than ever because there's so many different shows you know like we've gone from 200 odd to 500 and you know almost 600 shows in production and also so you know maybe there are more opportunities for people that way like there, there might be and the, but just the total amount well yeah the total amount spent on content and even then like a show might have run for 10, 15 seasons um, back in the day. Now they're very frequently cut off after two, three, four, even a, you know, what, what might be considered a hit show, like, like Barry and Succession are yeah. both wrapping after four seasons this year. So, you know, like the, the, the dynamic has shifted in terms of what is, what is being commissioned, and I don't think that you can change that with a strike necessarily because they're doing that for their own specific economic reasons rather than a sort of a cultural reason. And you know? do you feel like, I mean, you sort of said this before, they're sort of striking perhaps with an idea of what things used to be like and wanting maybe to be compensated for a, for a world or an industry that doesn't really exist like that anymore. Because I, I agree in terms of I'm not a writer on a TV show, but I am very much like the world is changing and you do have to adapt to the way that the world changed. Like I... Would I am so happy that shows like Succession have small seasons because it makes for a better thing. But I understand that. And, and well, and do you just think that writers maybe are asking for something that doesn't really exist anymore? Like they, I think it's very common, right, yeah. amongst anyone whose career has been impacted by technology to look wistfully 
at the economic paradigm which created the thing that you love doing. Musicians do that all the time. Journalists do that all the time. Uh, and I think there is something in uh, the, the fact that the sort of value, the, where, where the value sits in the chain of creative work has seemingly moved from media companies to almost like technology companies. Mm -hmm. And the writer has ultimately been disenfranchised from their value there in the same way that musicians and a whole pe a bunch of other people who, who work in, in culture uh, or media have. It's just about whether that is solvable with a, with a, with a strike because there's a part of me that worries like, okay, if this thing really beds in and it goes on for say like nine months – and because right now there is a backlog of catalog and yeah. Netflix can keep resurfacing and releasing and just hope that, you know, they've, they've all been through the, the pandemic, which had a similar kind of impact on the release schedules of shows and they, they survived it. But if it goes on that long and it really does start to sort of dry up, like what happens to the behavior? Like do people start going on to a place like YouTube, which is completely ununionized, where it's all user-generated content? Does some of that audience leave your television ecosystem to a place where they might not return from and that that would be my the sort of i mean i'm sure that that is what is being articulated mm. to them by the studios and by the the streamers and so on but it, it does seem like a non-trivial problem um, it's something that could happen it feels like um a strike is good for my generation only because it's made me learn about this and like to be clear i like fucking think some of these writers are the most hilarious and like they're like the best people. The guys, yeah, you know, like, culturally. Yeah. I am like, I mean, I like seeing things from, you know, multiple sides, but I am like somehow they need to be able to make a living to keep doing the thing that I want all the time and consume all the time. But I do think, yeah, another another interesting thing about this strike is that it comes at a time when AI is um, one of the things that they are worried about. They are worried about ch um, like chat GPT learning off of them and then being able to generate scripts. And they, as creatives, something we talk about all the time, don't want their jobs to turn into editing scripts that have like badly been trained on their words or like just, I don't know, quote unquote, take taking their jobs. And studios have sort of come back and said to that, we will host an annual state of the AI sort of meeting. What do you think about what do you think about the AI of all of it? Well, I mean, firstly, I don't. I think that the the job of writing television is at present so skilled and so difficult that I can't really imagine AI performing it in any any meaningful way. Uh, we came on here and we said that about my newsletter and someone yeah. trained it on 100 and it did kind of a good job. Well, yeah, but it wasn't <laughs> usable. Do you know what I mean? Like like I listened to the, the Joe Rogan uh, AI podcasts recently. I can't remember what that was before, whether we talked about that on the shit show or not. They sound uncannily accurate, Joe Rogan interviewing Donald Trump or Sam Altman. Yeah. But they'd say nothing of any consequence because – it's not, you know, like it, it yeah. doesn't hit because it's not the real thing. Like, 
I think that like especially because TV thrives on a certain amount of new and yeah, I, I personally can't see it in this generation. Like you, you can imagine them doing plausible dialogue for a scene, but is it going to advance the plot? Is it going to give you the weird thematic things? Is it going to start to breadcrumb where, where this is going? Like that stuff is so weird and subtle. Yeah, but imagine like the out-of-touch people at the top being like, holy fuck, writer's room would just like, we need you to try and use ChatGPT. This is the next thing. Like use it, and then it's just still a whole lot of labour for the writers to even be like, no, that's shit, that doesn't advance the plot, blah, blah, blah. I'm not, like, Yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that the, that the execs are that out of touch, they don't understand the value of writers. I just think that they have a different way of weighing it. Like, I would, and the other thing that this kind of, like, is just, like, a more broad annoyance, right? Like, I don't, didn't see writers or directors striking for visual effects artists when they stopped sort of hand painting scenes or, you know, doing a much more kind of manual style um, visual effects landscape because that's all gone to AI hell, right? Like Marvel movies are just, you know, like so much of what is rendered on screens in in so many productions is already uh, done with the assistance of, of AI. And it's only now that it's reached the kind of creative – or, or this end of the creative classes that we're all sort of freaking out about it. I'm not saying that we they shouldn't worry about it, but I'm like, there's going to be so many people whose jobs are impacted by AI. The writers, to me, what they do is it's just so kind of like yeah, like narrow and specific that yeah. I, I would worry less about it. Though I understand the concern. We're all terrified, right? Yeah. I think like to – sort of contradict myself because I feel like I'm here like uh, I'm like interviewing you as if I'm a writer being like what do you think about this and what <laughs> no, I'm acting like a boss it's a weird posture no, we've adopted I know it, it's really it, it's super weird but I kind of like it. it's kind of like role playing like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like you're an exec and I'm a writer that's striking but I find um I keep like almost quoting Greg from Succession but I find the AI of all of it almost like the least interesting and least threatening part of the argument, like of the strike. Um, You sort of, I'm just going to touch on before because I said that I would, you mentioned residuals. And just for anyone that's wanting to understand sort of what you meant when you were talking about residuals, it's just, it's kind of like royalties, right? It's like payments that you get when your show that you worked on was like, it got an international deal to go somewhere else or was sold on DVD or, you know, very of that time because now things move between different streaming services all the time and writers don't really see um residuals from those deals well they they also just don't like like residuals are ultimately like a function of the accessibility of data so if something was playing at like 5 30 p.m every day if you say they were doing reruns of friends um, which they did for years at like a 5.30 or a 7pm on so many different channels all around the world. And the audience ratings for that had a direct correlation to oh. to advertising revenue and that ultimately determined what a what a, a TVNZ way down in New Zealand might pay for that thing. Yeah. And some proportion of that revenue was set aside for different creators. Also, you know, for the, the lead actors yeah. and – you know, producers who'd put money into it initially and so on. When it goes to Netflix, Netflix doesn't tell you if Friends is the most watched show yeah. or the least popular show. Therefore, they will just get, you know, and often the deals that these things are bundled together. So they just don't have 
visibility over how much revenue mm. is being driven by them. But you all know, like from looking at TikTok and all the rest of it, how culturally resonant so yeah. many of these shows remain. So you can feel like, and you often see them when they drop into a service, they'll immediately hit the top 10. There's things yeah. like Parrot Analytics and various other public-facing data sources which do give you a sense of how useful they are to, to various platforms. So I think that's one area where the argument actually remains really strong and there could be a sort of they commit to revealing a total minutes watched or something yeah. and then, you know, so, uh, yeah, that, 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 that I think is a, is a much stronger place than AI, which feels a bit esoteric to me. So the writers want more transparency over the numbers that their shows are being seen and therefore how much the studio is making, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, or, or how yeah. much value it's creating. Because yeah. like, the studio is not making money for the most yeah. part. But if if the, the, the US office or Friends or Seinfeld yeah. or all of these like classic, often network-era sitcoms, they still drive a huge amount of viewership and make, make a platform really sticky. Therefore, you know, you'd think that the writers on those shows – um, this is actually another thing that's kind of a little bit um, makes it more complicated, right? Like some of what people are saying is essentially, you know, they're, they're you know the people who are wanting residuals and who wish that there were twenty four episode seasons and and you know are against many rooms. I assume they profile as people who are a lot more established writers. Well, yeah, because they would have had to be there for those seasons and like the good old days. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, younger writers who are just desperately trying to get a toehold in who feel like on some level they're more likely to get a go in a mini room Mm. or on a short, on a more esoteric series. Like, you know, is there more opportunity now and it's just a kind of a worse business for those at the top? And. Because you do see that sometimes mm. where the, the loudest voices are advocating for a system which worked very well for them but also just left a lot of people yeah, uh, outside the gates looking in. It's interesting because a lot of the people that I've um, read talking about this or listened to when I was preparing to us to have a chat about it were people that were also in the previous strike, which was like over 10 years ago. So it really made, it's really interesting that you're right, the voices that even I'm learning about this strike from are the ones that were there in the good old days or whatever they're talking about, not the young ones that are, like, coming up in this and maybe have a different perspective. Mini rooms, just very quickly. Or did you have something you wanted to say on that? Uh, I mean, ju- just sort of on that, like, because I do think that's a great point. Like, I read an interview over the weekend with James Griffin, who's a New Zealand showrunner who created Outrageous Fortune Westside, very acclaimed yeah. guy who worked – who basically had the, the best gigs and the most success for probably 15 straight years in New Zealand. And he was bemoaning, you know, that he, you know, he's been shopping a bunch of ideas to networks and can't get it made. New Zealand's moving away from commissioning dramas the way that it used to because we as a country can barely afford to make even one. Mm. And, and that strikes me as directly relevant to what you're talking about in the sense that the people who are most financially injured by this new model are people who've actually had the most success. Whereas I'm not sure that the new model, where there are a lot of shows made, different lengths, mini rooms, all the rest of it, there might be a sort of a, a middle class of writing who are part of the strike and want better conditions, rightly so, but they might not be as disadvantaged by this new regime as the the most famous and most successful writers mm. are. And I wonder if there is a, a, a bit of a tension there. Yeah, that's 
That's interesting. Now I want to go and read, like, or find younger writers that are striking and, like, hear, like, their main reasonings. But it's a mini rooms. Uh, another one of the things that we've talked about a bunch without explaining yet, one of the things that writers are sick of, apparently, according to the strike, which are essentially what? They're writers' rooms but with fewer writers and they're writing like a bunch of scripts for shows that maybe haven't been picked up yet. And so, but they're writing like more than just a pilot for these scripts. And so they aren't getting paid as much as if the show has been picked up. But also there are certain circumstances where... Like, you know the show Beef? So Beef is the one I want to talk about. Yeah. I reckon that, yeah. So, so explain the, the, the mini room's relationship to Beef. Well, for example, there was a mini room that was writing the script for the show Beef. And the mini room ended, because they are contracted for a shorter period of time, it ended before the final episode for Beef had been shot, which left the creator of the show to basically do the finale episode, like script it, I'm assuming, and make it make sense with everything else without the writers that had worked on the script with him. So have you watched Beef? I have watched the first like five episodes. It just, I I got too stressful or depressing or something. I I just finished it over the weekend and I loved the first seven episodes of it. Yeah. I thought it was like really kind of original show in in a, a lot of different ways. But it had a natural ending at seven points and at seven episodes, sorry. Chris Schultz, who's a colleague of mine at the spinoff, wrote about it as, as an example of Netflix bloat, which kind of runs contra some of what they're saying. But they, he, he reckoned, and I think I sort of buy this, that they sort of filled it out to make it bigger than it would naturally have been because they sort of knew they were on to a, to a hit. But when I read that it had had a different writing situation for its last episode. I thought the last episode was like terrible. Oh, completely okay. unnecessary. Yeah. And you know, I think and and tonally really different. You could feel the fact that the the writers were gone there. So it it does, you know, ex- episodes like that um, speak to the value yeah. that, that writers are providing and I can totally see why. You can see why the studio is going for a mini room because they they got this amazing series basically half written out of it but I do think there needs to be some kind of recognition of the special magic that is created by writers that you it actually requires a less sort of frenzied and frenzied sorry a more committed creative environment than the one which basically broke that show Mm. to the point where I don't even think that you could do a second season of it particularly certainly not with the same kind of cast in reality because they sort of botched the ending so badly. And that's why you'll see a lot of the people striking saying, like, you do need writers. Like, writing doesn't end in the writing room. Like, you should be taking them, some of them, on, you know, on set. Because what about when, you know, actors improvise and the writers can be there to, like, help that along or whatever? I mean, to me, it makes total sense that you have writers while you're shooting the thing. Yeah, because you encounter situations yeah. you didn't see coming, yeah. which you want to be. Like the the fact is we've lived through this golden age of television, right? The last 20 years have, are known as the golden age of television because the quality has been so high. I personally feel like as we've gone to a, you know, to make more stuff, that, that we've been on a decline for probably the past 10 years. And I do think some of that is attributable to the fact that we're just trying to push more stuff through and make make more with less and and you know you can just sort of feel that things are getting a bit thin 
Yeah. And and so I, I, I think it's a battle worth fighting. It's just you've got to make sure you're fighting on the right front. And I'm not 100% sure that they are right now. And just to sort of round out the episode, first of all, I don't think – I looked up today – like what the latest update was. And there still doesn't seem to be like any common studio to writer's ground found. And you're not thinking it will happen for a what, hell of a long time? Well, people are saying that this one will be longer than the last one. And, and that sort of scans. Because if you think about the broader economic environment, like still got really high inflation. The cost of debt has gone up a lot. The So, you know, so the, the studios which were losing money – are losing more money than ever. There's a part of them where if they can mutually agree to just stop spending on content while this happens for like even like six months, at least they're all equally impacted by it. It's almost mm. like a, a weird cartel move to say, look, we're just not going to budge on any of it. You can People are going to have to keep watching something. Yeah. Well, um, last time this happened, when reality TV really popped off and I saw um, a lot of people writing about how Donald Trump's Celebrity Apprentice was one of the ones that, like, really popped off. And I'm like, okay, not to be, like, really dramatic, but do we want... Do we, <laughs> Blame the writers. Like, honestly, the writers <laughs> are the reason. For president. <laughs> yeah, no, but I just think, like, consequences that we may not see coming, like that, um, I don't know, could make for a very interesting next few, I don't know, however long this goes on for. I think it could, like, if, if you were to tell me that this is still going at Christmas, I would not be shocked. Well, let me run you through right now quickly some of the things that have already been affected, but I feel like based on your predictions, a lot more will be. Just today, actually, um, I read that the Tonys won't be aired to television because they, well, because of the strike. They're basically doing that in sympathy to the strike, I assume. Yeah, but it didn't, I read in Vulture today, but that hasn't stopped the Tonys from asking, however, um, and basically because the people that put on the Tonys said that the exposure from the broadcast is important for struggling Broadway shows, and, like, the Tonys is obviously huge for Broadway, Mm. but they were still denied, and then they asked again, denied again. So it's now it's, like, impacting, like, you know, in some type of way, the live sort of Broadway fucking environment, which I just thought was an interesting. Well, it's interesting that they continue to ask. Well, you can you can see the conundrum, right? Like if you're the Tonys, you're like, yeah, cool that you're doing solidarity for the writers, but you guys got to work for most of the last three years while we were shut yeah. for most of the last three years. So like, organized labor in creative situations is complicated. Like you can't pretend that it's not. Yeah. We also have Stranger Things and the writers or the creators of the show, rather, the Duffer brothers, tweeted, Duff is here. Writing does not stop when filming begins. That's what we were talking about with the mini rooms. While we're excited to start production with our amazing cast and crew, it's not possible during the strike. We hope a fair deal is reached soon and we can all get back to work. Until then, over and out, WGA strong. So... Stranger Things, as someone that's not watched it and has been referring to it throughout this whole... Are you a Stranger Things? No. No. I can't do Supernatural. Yeah, I can't can't do Supernatural particularly either. Um, Saturday Night Live will also be airing repeats until further notice, which could be a long time. I don't really care for Saturday Night Live either, but I like the monologues when they come up on TikTok. Um, (laughs) Big supporter of the arts over there. (laughs) Big supporter of the arts. Doing a whole podcast and I'm taking the side of the writers and you're taking the side of the execs, so... Um, the Pete Davidson um, handed out pizza to the writers, so 
go, Pete. Um, all the late night talk shows at this stage were all the big ones. Jimmy Kimmel, the other Jimmy, Fallon, Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, The Daily Show, Last Week Tonight. All the Tonight shows are basically off air because they rely, I mean, the fucking daily. And Yeah, I mean, this is where I think it gets complicated, right? Like where you might sort of see a bit of an unraveling here. If it lasts as long as I think it might – Late night shows are very expensive to put together. They're, they're you know, like the, the Daily Show, I, I read a book about it once, and there's like 100 people working on it. Like it's not a small production, a huge number of them in writing. And they're sort of, to a certain extent, marginal propositions, now certainly more so than they were in their heyday. You know, audiences are just unless down they're generally. Like really good on YouTube. Like unless their clips go viral, they're like. But even if they do, like if you train people to go somewhere else yeah. and do something else, you know, do you end up by the time you're willing to go back to work? Is there still work for you? And I think that's the sort of scary mm. thing about this. Like, you know, yeah, well, this makes some things obsolete because they just can't. Well, and because because there is a, just a general decline in, in audiences for cable and broadcast television generally, and it's been accelerating lately. Wow. You know, if they have nine months completely off the air, how much the audience has just gone to learn how to entertain themselves some other way and doesn't come back. Yeah, that's actually true. And the last one, um, which harps back to one of my favourite shows, Family Guy, is Seth MacFarlane and the showrunners for American Dad and Family Guy are putting down their tools and talents until the WGA has a new deal with the studios. However, as you mentioned before, I do know that Family Guy is like right now running, like they have banked up episodes. So I think they have a while and, like, it's fine for them to do that, um, but still, I'm not surprised that Seth MacFarlane, he's probably just hoping Fox doesn't try and fucking take over a show. And I make do some find movies. the idea of some, like, non-union <laughs> <laughs> labour writing episodes of these really specific shows no, and animating. I know. Because I'm sure that they'd be downing tools in solid- solidarity and then just being, like, <laughs> like the AI Seinfeld, yeah. just, like, a real... Like, <laughs> we'll make it. <laughs> So anyway, all of this to say is that we have no answers, as usual, on these podcasts, but we have lots of questions that I hope you've been thinking about. Um, Dunk, I feel like after talking about this, I find it more interesting now to think about the future of what's going to happen because, like, especially with the daily shows, some of those writers are, like, the best writers ever and they're working, like, what will they go and do next that might be different, hopefully compensated properly, like, that's kind of exciting in a weird type of way. It's exciting in the sense that, you know, they're not going to stop being brilliant and yeah. they're going to figure out something else to do. Maybe it's, it's because I don't love daily. Like, not yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that format. I can imagine if you were living in America, it would feel yeah. different because it's like even the timing of it, it's more baked into the culture. It feels pretty sort of, I don't know, distant to us. But, yeah, like sometimes these things just go. You know, like, and they don't necessarily come back. And that's the thing to be sort of wary of, I would have thought. Not that we can do anything to make sure they stay or go, except for comment on it on our little podcast. And I think we'll have to do a, when this ends, if this ends, we'll have to do a a bit of a follow-up. Would love to. Shall we? Yeah. And we write these ourselves, everyone. So (laughs) it is hard. It's, just, re- it's really just hard to like give a bit some fucking props to the people that are doing those like I daily print shows. It out yeah, and usually and endure the shaming of my co-host. I know, pretty bad 
conditions. <laughs> Pretty bad conditions. <laughs> Working conditions. I'm also hearing that like these daily shows have 100 um, people helping put them together and I'm like, I write a daily thing and I've no help, so maybe I'm maybe I need to get some help. I mean, I've been telling you no, that that was all a bit. I don't. I wrote that bit myself and didn't <laughs> land, so maybe I don't need some help. Anyway, um, you finally heard the chaos that we promised at the start of the pod. I feel like we held it together until now, but thanks, Dunk, for taking the bad guy side. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, a, it's kind of my role at every publication. It's like, yeah, I'll be the one who interviews the leader of the National Party. Or I think whatever. it challenges, it's good, it challenges me and then it challenges the audience out of what the side that people expect us to take, I think. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a centrist dude. I'm interested in what both sides kind of have to think. So it's, it's just it's, a real balanced dude. Except oh, for no, like, not balanced. Well, okay, no. <laughs> balanced. Anyway, on that note, thank you, Tiahe Butler, for sitting and not only enduring this chat, but making it sound really good. Well, I hope it does. Um, and thanks, Dunk. We'll see you hopefully next week. Yeah. Haven't asked you Kane. yet, but keen. Bye, everyone. Bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.